Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So we're going to talk about poverty today. Uh, and so let me begin with a couple of things. Well, first of all, let me tell you what we have planned, although we're having a little bit of trouble getting our first guest here. But we plan to have the Reverend Dr. William Barber II, who uh, is really kind of his name is now kind of a watchword in the fight against poverty here in the United States. He's the co-author of Revive Us Again and the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Also, later in the show, we're going to talk about the philosophy behind our attitudes towards poverty and and what that philosophy philosophy maybe should be with Peter Singer, one of the nation's leading philosophers. Uh, He is a professor of bioethics at Princeton. And well, anyway, if if you're interested in philosophy, you've probably read a bunch of his books. A little bit later on in the show, uh, we're going to talk to Sarah Smarsh. She, in a way, is the person who who, kind of got me thinking about all this. Um, And she has got a new book out. Well, no, that's actually not true. Let me back up and say it a different way. I've been saying for a long time that the story we don't know in the United States uh, is the story of poverty. You can go to the movies and you can see movies uh, about uh, African-American people. You can see movies about Asian people. You can see uh, perspectives on women. But you don't most of those people, no matter what their race is, you don't see poor people that much. You don't see their stories that much. Uh, they're, they're just kept out of sight. Uh, they're not part of our culture. And that's kind of ironic because there's an awful lot of poor people in this country. So uh, let's begin this conversation. So anyway, Sarah Smarsh wrote a book about what it's like to be poor. I think these stories, the stories uh, of poor people are really important. We don't tell them. We don't listen to them. uh, And as a result, the problem starts to become invisible. Uh, Anyway, we're going to begin here with the uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, pastor, political leader, and president of the NAACP's North Carolina chapter. He's the co-author of Revive Us Again, Vision in Action in Moral Organizing and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Um, so, uh, Reverend William Barber, uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Uh, thank you, my friend, and uh, glad to be on with you today to talk about this important subject. Let me just let you know I'm not president now of the NAACP. I'm president and a senior lecturer of repairs of the breach, and I'm still on the NAACP national board, but I'm no longer the state president. Duly noted. All right. So um, earlier this year, as you no doubt know, the the UN came out with a report about poverty in the U.S. Uh, and it, it, I think, it just sort of stuck with the the clinical and official definition of poverty. But it said, you know, 40 million Americans live in poverty. 18.5 million live in extreme poverty. 5.3 million live in third world absolute poverty. Uh, we've got one fourth of the world's 2.2 thousand uh, billionaires, 2,208 billionaires. Uh, but we have this large population living in poverty. And I think, William Barber, you would also say that those numbers are low. It's really what, about 200 percent of the poverty rate, that's, that gives you a clearer picture of people who are poor, right? Indeed. We have struggled in this country for all of its existence, 
dealing with this issue of income inequality or poverty. You know, originally, we didn't even allow people to vote who weren't landowners. You know, slavery was a form of poverty. Racism and poverty are deeply connected. Uh, our, we had a report to come out before that one called The Souls of Poor Folk, Auditing America 50 Years. That's the, the Poor People's Campaign of 68. And what we found was that when you look at supplemental money, when you look at the number of people that would be in poverty without assistance, when you look at basic uh, payments for utilities and costs, there are 140 million poor people in this country. Forty, Over 43% of this country are poor or living in low wealth conditions. 43%. Uh, the majority of them are white women, uh, disabled, and children. Uh, a lot of people don't know that factor, as a matter of fact. Uh, the highest states with the highest poverty are also the states that have the greatest voter suppression. Uh, the, the states that have the highest voter suppression have the highest levels of poverty, the, the greatest number of low-wealth jobs, the least amount of health care, the least amount of, of available public housing. So there are five issues that, that connect to poverty. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy and militarism, because we put 53 cents of every discretionary dollar into war militarism, but less than 15 cents of every dollar into programs that lift up the poor, uh, like education and health care. And also this distorted moral narrative of so-called Christian religious nationalism, which basically says that to serve God is not to help the poor and to lift up the least of these, but it is, in fact, to be against homosexuality, uh, for prayer in the school, against abortion, for tax cuts, and for guns. Uh, these five interlocking injustices keep us from really seeing and dealing with the issues of poverty. So one thing that happened uh, in response to that U.N. report, and for all I know, it happened also into the, in response to the report that, that you talked about, is that the Trump administration got really angry, basically, and they denounced the report. <laughs> they said it was inaccurate, inflammatory, and irresponsible. Uh, I think that was uh, U.S. Ambassador uh, uh, Nikki Haley. No, the, actually, she said it was misleading and politically motivated. Fox News said it was full of cherry-picked data. The Conservative uh, Heritage Foundation claimed that uh, there are only 250,000 Americans living in extreme poverty. Um, there seemed to be a desire not simply to have a, an argument or a conversation about how to address poverty. The first conversation seemed to be an argu argument about whether poverty exists uh, in the dimensions well, that you're describing. Well, sure, certainly. In fact, let me just say, neither party has really dealt with the issue of poverty uh, since Lyndon Baines Johnson talked about a war on poverty. Uh, after 68, there was an attempt to not even talk about poverty and not even talk about race, for that matter. And so we have a whole political conversation now where we talk about the middle class and we talk about um, um, protecting the country, you know, foreign affairs. But we, we went through 26 presidential debates in the last uh, election, Democrat, Republican, primary and general election. And we did not deal with have one hour on racism systemic racism. I'm not talking about when somebody calls you the N-word. I'm talking about systemic racism like voter suppression that has been proven to exist. We didn't have one hour discussing that. And we didn't have one hour of any debate dealing with poverty, dealing with the 43 million people who live in poverty and the 62 million people who work every day but make less than a living wage. Uh, we didn't have any conversation about that. So it's not surprising to me that an administration that was bred out of lies, 
that uh, use lies in the campaign, that lied about winning when they really didn't even win the popular vote, uh, will continue to lie because they don't want to deal with the issue. You, you, you cannot say you're serious about dealing with poverty if you cut $2 trillion from the budget, which is going to undermine programs that help the poor. You cannot say you're serious about dealing with poverty if you're constantly wanting to cut health care that would help the poor and those that do not have health care uh, be able to afford it and receive health care. So you have this narrative, and if poverty is true, your narrative implodes. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't survive. And so that's why you're seeing these lies. Of course, it's interesting. Nikki Haley would say something, would deny poverty. When she was governor of a state, and while she was governor of a state, she spent millions of dollars fighting to preserve voter suppression, but did not raise money from public education in her state, denied uh, health care expansion in her state, despite, despite the large numbers of poor people in her state. And then lastly, it is interesting that the Republicans, particularly, well, I call them extremists, who call themselves Republicans, would fight against addressing poverty when, in fact, the majority of the poor people in this country are white. And, and a large number of the people that are being hurt by Trump administration policies are, in fact, white. So what we have here is we have, first of all, there was an attempt uh, by the extremists to, to racialize poverty. It was a black issue. Now there's a, an attempt to just deny the fact and deny the data and deny most of all the human lives that live in poverty every day in the richest nation in the world. And let me just give you one more stat. There are more than 14 million children living in poverty in America. There are 25 of the wealthiest countries in the world. We are the only country that does not offer some form of universal health care. That is a moral travesty, and it is and it is destroying lives so that 250,000 people die every year from low wealth. Right. That's more than die from heart attack, stroke, and other forms of medical condition. So we are actually having murder by public policy. That's what's going on in this country, which is why we have to have a movement of impacted people who are willing to get in the streets, who are willing to go to the ballot box, who are willing to do what is necessary in a nonviolent way to say we will no longer be ignored. So, you know, it seems like there's two things going on here or two things that you could talk about doing, William Barber. One of them uh, is trying to get people who are not poor to understand how many poor people there are and what it's like to be poor, what it's like to work two jobs uh, and have to work while you're sick and barely see your kids. And, you know, I mean, all of the things that kind of all that all those narratives, to use your word, that gets uh, suppressed and see if you could get motivate those people to care more and to change the the political engines that can address this. The other thing, and see, this seems to be the thing that you are more motivated to do right now, is to get those poor people to become a political force uh, themselves, have them be a force that politicians have to respond to because they vote. Um, it, has that second thing become kind of more important to you at this point? No, actually, we believe in fusion politics. Dr. King said in '68. We have to have an unsettling force. That is, the people who are impacted. Because too often, even when we quote the number 39 million in poverty, or when you said Fox News said 
There are only 250,000 people living in extreme poverty. Notice that. They are only. Yeah. It is almost as a dismissal. Quarter million people living in extreme poverty. That's a quarter million human beings created by God, who are in the image of God, who you're literally willing to write off. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is do fusion. We need black and white and brown and Asian and, 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 and native. We need rich and poor. We need young and old, gay and straight. We need people of all different backgrounds coming together around a critique of our society and an agenda for changing it. So what we've done is we've said there are these five interlocking injustices, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. And we are organizing people all around the country. Some of them are wealthy people with a conscience. Most of them are poor people and people of faith and advocates for the poor who are building these coordinating committees that we now have in 41 states. We had 40 days of direct actions. Never happened like this in the history of this country. Uh, 40 straight days simultaneously in 37 states. All people of every different race, creed, color, and income were willing to do civil disobedience. Over 5,000 people did it in these 37 states in the District of Columbia. Uh, we we had 38 million Twitter uh, um, hits. Millions of people watched uh, our videos and live stream. And on June 23rd, we announced the beginning, not the end, of a poor people's campaign, a national call for a moral revival had 25,000 people to show up to say they're going to be the founding members of this new movement in this country. And notice it's a movement, not another organization, because we need everybody, because this is a deep moral issue. It is a violation of our deepest moral religious values and our constitutional values, because we are called by our Constitution to provide for the common good and, and, and to promote the general welfare and to establish justice. And the level of inequality and poverty in this country is neither the establishment of justice, it neither provides for the common good, nor does it protect, promote the general welfare. So what we're saying is it has to be everybody, but it has to be with the poor or led by the poor. That the 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country really represent the salvation for America. This past election we went through, 97 million people did not vote. Uh, less than 85,000 votes gave us through the Electoral College, the president that we have now. Think about if that group of people were mobilized, but a a lot of the 140 million people are not mobilized because when we do political campaigns, Democrats and Republicans, they never hear their name. Mm -hmm. They never hear their condition. All they hear is middle class. We have to change that narrative on both sides of the aisle. We have to push Democrats to do what they know is right and stop being afraid, and we have to challenge Republicans who simply want to say that the answer to every question is more funding for the military and tax cuts, which is not the truth. And then to say that we have to choose between cutting taxes and raising taxes. We have the money. We don't have the will. Mm. Uh, I think Mary Wright Edelman has showed in one of her reports if you just took 2% of the federal budget and put it in programs that we know work for children, you could eradicate 60% of the poverty tomorrow. If you, just, if, you, if you just didn't raise the military budget to 66 cents, what they're trying to do now, 66 cents of every discretionary dollar, you could still have a strong uh, 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 military and, and so-called defense of the country 
but also provide people with health care and public education and living wage. It is not that we don't have the money. We have the money. CEOs make an average of 600 times more, or three to 600 times more than their workers. We have the money. We just have too much greed. We have too much uh, uh, wanting to have it all, have everything. And that's why we have to change the narrative. We have to put a face on the facts. Too often, as you said, starting this conversation, the faces are hidden. And even when people see the facts, they just look at numbers, and they really don't see human beings and, and their brothers and sisters. We must have a movement that changes that. And we're inviting all people of conscience to be a part of this movement. But they must do it with the poor and not for the poor. All right. We're, that's uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. He's going to stay with us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with the philosopher Peter Singer. All right, we're talking about the the poor, uh, the poor who, uh, as the cliche goes, will always be with us. But their stories aren't really told. We don't have to think about them, so we don't think about them. Um, we're going to continue talking to William Barber, but we're also adding to the conversation somebody whose work I've been reading for a long time since Animal Liberation, Peter Singer, philosopher and writer as well, uh, Ira W. DeCamp, a professor of bioethics at Princeton, laureate professor at the University of Melbourne, uh, and he's the co-founder of the nonprofit The Life You Can Save, as well as the author of the book by the same name. Uh, his most recent book is The Most Good You Can Do. Uh, Peter Singer, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. It's good to join you. So um, I'm going to tell a story, uh, the same story, uh, twice in two days, uh, but in a different context. So uh, last Sunday, uh, I was watching a football game, and it got over, and my favorite team uh, had, I thought, been victimized by a terrible penalty. And I was so upset about this that I would kind of ruined my day, this bad call that had been made against the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and I just grabbed the newspaper. It was the New York Times, and I pulled it up to my face, and it said something to the effect that people in Rwanda are dying slow death from strep, strep obviously being a very treatable disease. And I thought, well, I suppose maybe my day shouldn't be ruined by a penalty against the Green Bay Packers. But that's kind of how we live, right? We live with a set of rewards uh, and disappointments that are very, are scaled very small so that we don't think about larger pictures. How did we get in that position? Well, I suppose we do identify with our tribe. We've always done that. Uh, our ancestors lived in small social groups. And today, perhaps the Green Bay Packers is your tribe. Uh, certainly for a lot of people, identification with a sports team is rather like that. And you care a lot that, like about that. On the other hand, people in Rwanda, you've never seen them. You can read about them, but you don't know any of them. They're far from you. And we're just not emotionally geared to feel the same about that as we feel about those that we do identify with. But I, I, do, I do live in a country full of poor people, right? I mean, we just, uh, William Barber's still here, but we just talked about that, you know, that there's, you know, probably 100, 140 million people who live in some definition uh, of want or need, or, I mean, we can pick a smaller number for the actual poverty line. How come I don't care more about them? How come I'm not giving them more of my resources? Well, I would guess that 
very few of them are part of your regular social circle. Uh, how many of them do you actually meet and talk to and do you know as individuals? You, you may pass them on the street and see them and that may cause some identification. But we do live in pretty separate worlds even when they're in the United States. So, so as a philosopher, what, what do you want someone like me to think about? Um, how, how do I think about this in a better way? Well, you already started that by, after being disappointed with your football team's loss, you, you did look at the New York Times and you did put this into some perspective by seeing how badly off people are elsewhere. And that's a first step to realize that there is this whole world of people out there and that they matter too and that what they're going through is so much worse than what you're going through. But then the next step is to say, and I can do something about this. And indeed, I ought to do something about this. I can't really look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm looking at a good person there unless I am doing something about people who are so much worse off than I am and who I have the ability to help because there are effective organizations that will accept your donation and use it to make a difference to those people. But then the question begins begins to be, how do we decide what the yardstick is, right? If I gave 3% of my income to Oxfam or to, to some other organization that, that addressed poverty, I'd be on the high end of things. Um, but 3% doesn't really seem like very much when you consider the fact that I have a lot more resources than people who are truly poor. Uh, but I could pat myself on the back because 3% is more than the national average. You could pat yourself on the back for exceeding the national average, but you might want to think a bit further about, you know, could I do more? How much of a difference would it make to my lifestyle if, let's say, you went to 10%, which, you know, Christian sort of tithe is a nice round figure. Um, so you could think about doing that and see whether that had a negative effect on your lifestyle or whether conversely you now actually felt some fulfillment and more purpose in your life because you were contributing in a more substantial way to people whose needs are, are so great. Um, so I'm not going to tell you exactly what percentage you should give. I think that's something for each one of us to work out. I do suggest, though, you start with something moderately substantial and probably most comfortably off uh, Americans could give 10% without too much trouble. Then um, see how you, how you cope with that. Maybe you'll find that that wasn't that difficult and you'll be able to increase that next year. Um, you know, think of it as doing your best, just like you have a, perhaps if you jog, you might have a personal best for a particular distance that you run. Think about um, giving in the same way that you can give something now and see whether you can do better next year. Right. Um, uh, we should say, well, let me bring William Barber back here for a second because, um, you know, uh, William Barber, I've asked you to speak. Oh, I don't think he's there anymore. So uh, let's stay with Peter Singer then. Um, so there's a way in which I don't think we're wired to do some of the things that you're talking about. I mean, we should absolutely do them. They're moral imperatives. But probably there's wiring that goes back to our life as hominids when resources were scarce. It probably makes sen made sense at some point in some way to hoard resources for times of even deeper scarcity. Um, probably also an awful lot of the inculcation uh, of us as modern beings has to do with making sure you have enough, putting up enough aside. Do you have enough for your retirement? All that kind of stuff. I mean, is it the case that we're sort of trying to swim against a bit of a river current here? Yeah, I would 
prefer that second metaphor that we're swimming against some kind of current to the idea that we're hardwired not to do this. That 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 idea of we're wired not to do this is is too deterministic for me. I think we do have tendencies in our nature, as you say, uh, that have evolved, that have helped our ancestors to survive and reproduce and pass on those tendencies to us. But we are in a different position now from that which most of our ancestors were in, in that we do have a reasonable amount of of security. Um, We can certainly retain some of our money for putting aside for things that might happen, might create needs we don't anticipate. But, um, you know, yeah, we're pretty comfortable and, and for most people we can do that and still have something left over. We're still spending on, on luxuries that we don't need, for example, that aren't doing anything for our retirement or for hard times. So uh, we, we can make choices. We do have choices. It's, it's an excuse to say, I'm just not wired to do this because I think really uh, for everybody who is middle class or above in the United States, it's definitely a choice that we make to do this or not to do it. Let me just go back to the Reverend Dr. William Barber. I think we have him now. Uh, uh, I, I talked to you as a poverty activist and a leader of uh, anti-poverty movement before. I'm going to talk to you more uh, as a clergyman now. When you talk about the moral imperative to do something about this and the moral imperative of people who have more to help people who have very little, uh, how do you put it? What is the moral imperative? Where does it come from? Well, I think you framed it a little differently than I would frame it. So you said from an activist to a clergy, I don't separate the two. Mm-hmm. Because in the scriptures, the prophets said we must stop. The prophets challenged policy. Jesus' first sermon was a challenge to policy when he said good news to the poor. The word there is a word in Greek um, that literally means those who those have been made poor by exploitive systems. He was actually critiquing the systems of Caesar and domination. So let me step back for a second as I've been listening to the conversation. When you opened this this portion, you talked about, you used a portion of a scripture, the poor will be with you always. And that's what those who want to say there's nothing we can do, we can't solve this problem. That actually is not the scripture. The scripture actually says the poor are with you because you refuse to implement the kind of policies that would, would, would alleviate the poverty. Poverty is a man-made creation. It is not a, a government and, and a government policy creation. It is not just something that's automatic. There's nothing we can do. That's number one. Number two, the issue, the conversation should never be about what do I have to give away personal, my personal donation. We the, we're talking in the Poor People's Campaign about policies that create poverty. If 62 million people are working poor and working without a living wage. That is not about me giving a donation. That is, in fact, about corporations being willing to pay people a living wage. Just like years ago, we had to fight for, under Franklin Rosa, for a minimum wage, and there were people that didn't want it back then in the 20s. We have to have moral movements that will push for the change in policies. Every movement in this country that has made a difference, abolition movement, the women's rights movement, the social gospel movement, the New Deal movement, uh, the the civil rights movement, the voting rights movement, have all had deep moral frameworks to say it is policy, not personal uh, 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 charity, but it is policy that has to be changed in order for these realities to change. And we've seen that happen. So it's not as though we haven't seen it happen. 
sometimes, and that's why Dr. King was killed. Remember, the Poor People's Campaign didn't end. He was shot. Uh, um, um, the war on poverty didn't just end. Um, uh, um, uh, Linda Baines Johnson ended up not running. We didn't have Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon began to dismantle policy, created a whole new way of pitting people against one another called the Southern Strategy that would actually make blacks and whites who are poor in the South fight each other rather than be allies. And so we have to understand it. Let me give you a clear example. I just came from North Carolina. In North Carolina, everybody's talking about the hurricane. But before Florence ever came, there was a hurricane in North Carolina that the policymakers refused to address. 4.7 million poor people, a million people without health insurance, and yet our legislature denied expanding health insurance that could have provided health insurance to 500,000 people. Our legislature has refused to raise the minimum wage to ten dollars, which could have brought a lot of people up out of poverty. All right, William so Barber, I, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna just jump in here because I want I've only got a few more minutes with Peter Singer, and I want to get back to some of these uh, questions about about how we think about these things. So, Peter Singer, I'm gonna kind of speed through uh, one of your thought experiments, and the thought experiment basically has something uh, goes something along the lines of imagine that uh, there's uh, a man's very expensive car, an old Bugatti or a Duesenberg or something like that, is sitting on the tracks incredibly valuable. There's a train coming uh, that um, uh, that will either kill a kid or hit the Bugatti. He can throw a switch and it, and it hits the Bugatti and the kid stays alive. Uh, but that you argue that essentially we're doing the opposite thing, right? That we're spending more money on possessions, on possessions that are not basic needs or and that rise well above the standard of basic needs when, in fact, we could throw the switch and use our resources to keep a child or many children or many people alive. Talk more about that. Right. Well, the, the point of the example is that if somebody didn't throw the switch to save the child, if they said, oh, no, I didn't want to destroy my beautiful Bugatti, we would think that person is, is really a bit of a monster. Um, they're knowing that a child will die and they could save the child, but they want to preserve their rare car. But in fact, when we think about it, we are in that situation because we can save lives. There are effective organizations. For example, the Against Malaria Foundation will distribute bed nets to protect children against malaria, proven to save the lives of children. Uh, there are organizations that I, we recommend on the website, thelifeyoucansave.org. And if you're spending money on things you don't need when you could be sending it to those organizations, then you are making that choice about, I think these things are more important for me than saving a child's life. So I think we need to, to look at ourselves. And uh, I accept uh, Reverend Barber's point that f in the United States, there are policies that need to be changed in order to address uh, the poverty in the United States. But I'm focusing on poverty in developing countries, which is more extreme, really, because people in developing countries don't have things that you take for granted in the United States, like clean drinking water, like being able to send your children to school, like being able to go to the emergency room of a hospital, even if you don't have health insurance and get treated. Uh, so I'm thinking about those people you know, while you could say, yes, there could be better policies, better trade policies, better and more effective foreign aid that this country is giving, the fact is that those things are not going to change in the short term. Maybe they'll change after the next presidential election. Who knows? I hope so. But in the meantime, people are in need and there are people we can help. And I do think that we ought to be helping with our 
own donations as well as being active citizens and trying to change government policies for the better. Do you think people change that way too? Uh, we're almost out of time, but it's an interesting question. In other words, when you explain something to them that way, using a thought experiment or explaining ways in which effectively they're letting a grievous moral harm happen by doing nothing, does it change minds? Well, it certainly changes some minds. We have now this emerging effective altruism movement, uh, which has clearly moved hundreds of millions of dollars to more effective charities. We can trace that through websites like The Life You Can Save and like GiveWell.org. So, yes, it's not changing enough lives. We haven't got into the billions of dollars, uh, and the United States gives hundreds of billions of dollars to charity. So there's a long way to go, but we are making a difference. What do you think about the fact that uh, we only have about a minute left, but um, in, in study after study, and uh, as a philosopher, this must intrigue you, in terms of percentage of wealth, poor people are far more generous than rich people, right? Poor people give, much, give away a much larger percentage uh, of what they have. Why, why? I don't know. Answer the human question about that. Yes, I think that poor people actually are more experienced with what poverty is like and perhaps they've been part of a network that has helped people when they need to. So they help other people who are in the same situation. Uh, and you're right that they give more than middle class people. Once you get up to seriously wealthy people, they again do give a higher percentage. Um, but of course, they can easily afford to. That's no sacrifice. And what is remarkable is that people in poverty do give substantial proportions of their income to others. So in that respect, they're better than most of us. All right. Peter Singer, we have to stop there, but it's an honor to talk to you, philosopher and writer, as well as Ira DeCamp, professor of bioethics at Princeton, uh, author of The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to uh, end with talking to somebody who has experienced and lived poverty. And, and now writes about it. Who needs some loving care inside a happy home? Somewhere a wealthy man is sitting on his throne, waiting for life to go. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. Part of Bill Curry was played by Mother Teresa. On tomorrow's show, we're going to the other end of the spectrum, discussing a Netflix movie about rich people in Westport, Connecticut. And now, back to Colin. I've been thinking about doing this show for a long time. I was looking for kind of the right reason or occasion to do it. And then a book came into this newsroom. It was Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth by Sarah Smarsh. And I, I handed it to producer Josh Nalea and I said, here it is. This is the show that I want to do. Uh, and she is joining us now. Sarah Smarsh is a writer and journalist covering issues of socioeconomic class, politics, and public policy. Uh, Heartland uh, is uh, creating something of a stir uh, and getting some very interesting reviews. And she She's joining us now. Hi, Sarah Smarsh. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. So as I said, one of the things I want you to do, maybe just to begin, is I think one of the problems between, one of the ways that there's kind of this conceptual gulf between people who are broke, people who are hardworking class people, and the people who don't fit that description is we don't know, we don't know the stories of those people, that we don't know the stories of America's working poor. So I'm just going to ask you to tell one story from the book, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what's behind all that. Sure. 
I grew up in the 80s and 90s in rural Kansas, about 40 miles west of Wichita. And um, when I was in second grade, my dad, who was a fourth-generation wheat farmer and carpenter, still wasn't able to make ends meet in those industries. And so he took a side job driving. Basically, it was a, a truck that went around the greater Wichita area and out into rural areas picking up chemical waste. So it might have been spent oil from someplace that does oil changes or whatever. And, and then his job was to take this toxic material to some sort of official place where it was, in theory, safely disposed of. So for reasons that are unclear and perhaps lost to history, the fumes of those chemicals he was transporting were seeping into, unbeknownst to him, the cab of this work van he was driving. Uh, it almost killed him. Um, he was uh, hospitalized with chemical poisoning, and this, it was like his first week on the job that this happened. And, and you know, that was a, a hugely traumatic event in our lives that altered the course of things economically and personally and, and even in his marriage. I think that something that people who haven't lived the day-to-day -day grind of the working poor might not understand is the extent to which it is not just, you know, psychological peril, but, but often just very physical and maybe even mortal peril um, that goes along with fighting to get by in this country. Yeah, there's a sense, and I, I analogize a little bit between this book and Educated by Tara Westover, both of you are writing about ways in which it's not safe. I mean, her life was not safe for a whole bunch of reasons yeah. that were or were not connect connected to her economic status. And I mean, obviously, every family is different. Your family had some specific stuff. But there's a sense, you know, you're, I, I, was it three bus crashes, three school yeah. bus crashes? Yeah, that's right. I think once we hit a deer and a couple other times, the, uh, the weather elements basically sent our bus into the ditch. So these you know, I was accessing these public institutions across geographic expanses. So I was like 10 miles away from, from the nearest school, um, and I got there via a big, clunky public bus without seat belts that was rambling along these washed-out dirt roads that were muddy and icy and full of ruts. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a physical thing out there. And I think also there are ways in which there are these cycles, you know. If you can't get your teeth taken care of, well, you can describe this better than I can. I think you wrote a whole essay uh, called Poor Teeth. But, um, well, so talk a little bit about that. You, ha you can't get your teeth taken care of, and then that likely leads to all kinds of other stuff, including maybe even, uh, you know, a person whose teeth are all bad can't get through a certain kind of job interview or something. Yeah, it's absolutely cyclical. So the sort of peril that I'm describing, it then either just precludes one from accessing the help that someone might benefit from, or it reinforces the experience. So to your point about teeth, in a country that really stigmatizes poverty and in which things like straight white teeth are signifiers for class, really, while a lot of people haven't probably examined it thusly, um, that's absolutely the case. Uh, you know, you might you know, work your tail off in the, toward this so-called American dream, buying into the idea that you will be rewarded for those efforts, and then, you know, finally make your way into a job interview and have someone look at the not-great clothes that you can afford and the not-great teeth that you weren't able to get fixed, and then you don't get the job. And then you can't afford to get your teeth fixed, and then so it goes around and round. Right. And I think also you said that there uh, is a stigma. I want to talk a little bit about that, too. Well, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Tell me more about the stigma. So, you know, I think that my vantage on this particular aspect of poverty, um, which we might call classism and a, a classist society that poor folks contend with, 
comes from my sort of straddling two different worlds. I think of myself as kind of holding a dual citizenship in terms of class. I come from a rural place. It was, um, you know, we had enough to eat, but by every definition, um, would, would be classified as the working poor. Uh, and I now am a professional journalist and have been for enough years to gain some broader understanding of the context that we lived in. And so I see now the extent to which my family was often harshly judged by popular culture, the news media, even people that we encountered in what to us was the bustling metropolis of Wichita, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those attitudes, the sort of like deep-seated contempt for people who have not succeeded in a capitalist society, often by no fault of their own, is extremely destructive to our country. And we have seen some ways um, that the, those attitudes, I think, have, are starting to kind of really tear at the social fabric of our ability to even uh, have political discourse. You know, let's talk about Wichita for a second, because that is an interesting question. Like, I I think we have kind of a tacit agreement about how much of this story is lost on people who live in New York or L.A. or their coastal equivalents. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually looking at a piece in the Wichita Eagle about your Mm -hmm. book. Uh, I was interested to see, like, how did the Eagle process this? How much of what's in your book would be as much of a surprise to, um, say, middle to upper middle class family in Wichita as it would be to someone living in Boston or Palo Alto? Oh, my gosh, this is such a good question, and it, I don't get asked it very often. Um, absolutely, it's. I think that one of the, um, the, the elements of this conversation and the relativity of class and the ways in which there are strata within strata can often be overlooked by people with a more coastal experience that's associated with economic privilege. Um, so, well, for one thing, let me let me say that the fact that I grew up poor on a farm in Kansas is in many ways like plays into some sort of stereotype about this place. Um, I actually am in the extreme minority for having that experience within the state of Kansas. While it remains a largely agricultural economy, the vast majority of people are not farmers um, in this state. Um, And, uh, you know, when I went to a state school, I was a first-generation college student at the University of Kansas, and um, my experience, having grown up poor and rural, made me a socioeconomic minority in an extreme sense on a campus that, you know, someone who went to prep school in an Ivy League university might think, oh, state school and sort of picture that as some sort of monolith in terms of class. Um, And in fact, you know, is kids from middle class kids from Chicago suburbs and Kansas City and Wichita. And, you know, they grew up with a lot of privileges that to me seemed incredible and immensely fancy and yet their experience would be maybe missed by you know like you said somebody in Boston who is envisioning Kansas as just a whole bunch of farmers. Right. I I think living in America in some ways is a process of finding out who it is who is enjoying a reality very different from yours. So no matter almost almost no matter where you are in that continuum, sooner or later you're going to find oh well there's these other people they're having all these experiences that I don't have. Uh, I don't even have access to them. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about work. Well, let's just start with one thing, which is I think that uh, you and I both believe that somehow or other inscribed on the American 
you know, collective subconscious in a way that goes back to the founding of this country and the Protestant work ethic and all that Max Weber stuff is this notion that if you're poor, you had some hand in being poor, that if you're poor, it's because you didn't do a certain things, certain set of things that any American could conceivably do in order to rise above his or her station. Yeah, I think one of the exciting things about this moment where I really believe as someone who has been writing about class for a long time uh, before it was a fashionable discussion in media, um, the fact that now it seems that we as a country are waking up to, in some painful ways, but important ones, the extent to which a class system does exist and thrive in this country and has since day one is the first step in reconciling a lot of our social woes. You know, we've kind of like had our head in the sand about the economic realities of this place when we are um, trading on in this idea that people get what they earn and people who work hard are rewarded for it. Of course, statistics tell us that, that that's not at all the case. If you're born poor, you're very likely to remain so regardless of how you work and regardless of your innate talent. So the fact that you and I are even having this conversation, like I don't think this would have happened 10 years ago. And so that's encouraging to me. But as far as, you know, in the meantime, the, the, the heartbreak and the hell of the reality is that even I think um, often, you know, I now identify as, I, I don't want to turn this into a political conversation, but I do view myself as being on the progressive end of the American political spectrum. And um, I find that often my political tribe or allies who, you know, American liberals are, they're, they're for programs that would help the poor, but yet I find many of them still deep down kind of think that they really earned their own wealth and privilege, and it's more of a sense of like being grand and charitable as opposed to really see, thinking that there is something wrong with the way that this supposed meritocracy works. So, uh, Sarah Marsh, uh, we're nearing the end of this conversation, although I hope we're not n- nearing the end of people discussing and <laughs> reading and then discussing this book and discussing some of the issues in it, uh, the book Heartland by Sarah Marsh. But, you know, you said earlier you didn't want to make this a political conversation, and I don't especially either, but you also said we wouldn't, we might, we might not have had this conversation 10 years ago. 10 years yeah. ago, I don't know, I don't know when this book came out, I'm making this up, but 10 years ago we might have been talking about another book about Kansas, What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas mm-hmm. Frank. And so his argument there, which, and, and I've read your, New York Times op-ed piece. I read it when it came out. I thought it was really amazing and very important. So his argument is, well, Kansas is full of people who vote against their own best interests and they don't understand. Um, Maybe you could sort of, without making this a strictly political conversation, kind of react to that idea a little bit. Sure. You know, I admire a lot of things about that book, and I think it makes some important points about the way the right has leveraged some issues and aspects of culture to its political benefit in places like my state. But as far as that framework about voting against one's own best interest, I I worry that the next step from that is, or, or maybe even implicit in that idea, is that people are just plain dumb and <laughs> um, can't be trusted to make decisions for themselves. I know because I grew up uh, among that very demographic that they're not dumb, and so there must not be something quite right about that critique. Um, what I know, having made some political shifts as an individual, you know, I can only 
speak for myself, but I think an, an overlooked aspect of our political discussion and, and perhaps some of the ideas in that book is that is the extent to which our place, our environment, the information that we are privileged to have, our family, the group dynamics of a small town, all of these shape our uh, political views and our party affiliations and the way that, that, that we vote. And it has nothing to do with our personal character or ability to see clearly. And how you know that is most people in like blue bubbles in this country came by their politics the very same way that people in red politics came by theirs from their their family, their social group, the information that they and um, their hyperlocal culture was uh, privy to and endorsing. So I just always hesitate to frame the country as like two groups who are innately so different or one has gotten it right and the other one hasn't. I think it's, you know, absolutely the responsibility is on the um, individual to some extent to make decisions. But gosh, we're products of so many forces um, that have nothing to do with our own um, clear vision or character. Right. But another point that you make that I think is really important is another one of these kind of default latent images that we have uh, are that poor white Americans are surrounded by poor white Americans and mm-hmm. they only want to be surrounded by poor white Americans. And, and yeah. the reality is, as you pointed out, is, you know, if you're on a work crew getting covered with drywall dust, you know, or something like that, chances are this is like a Laotian guy on one side of you and uh, maybe yeah. a Mexican person on the other side, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I lived in New York for a few years and I've kind of been in all sorts of socioeconomic spaces from the height of privilege to the least of it. And I find that white people, white people are capable of racism and awful ideas and thinking and actions at every level of that rung. And so the sort of like scapegoating of poor whites as though that's where, that's the last bastion of white supremacy in this country. It's like, actually, my experience growing up um, in the working class was in some ways a more racially integrated one than some of the more privileged white spaces that I have been part of. And that that was for sharing the same, you know, economic uh, strata and struggles and labor. All right. So to learn more about Sarah Marsh's place, uh, read Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Uh, Sarah Marsh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Colin. So that's our show. Um, I hope it's just the beginning of a conversation. I think this is a a chasm uh, that is going to take a very, very long time to bridge. Um, Probably won't be the last time we do a show like this one. I hope it won't. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow.